Welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. It's good. All right, we'll take our scripture. Um, we're continuing our message series, The Chair, and today I want to talk to you about the idea that every chair can make a difference. Every chair can make a difference. So uh, if you'll turn your Bibles or look up on the screen to John chapter 6, verse 9, reading from the NIV. Everybody read it with me and go. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Let's read it one more time. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Thank you. You can be seated. Glad you're here this morning. I want to get right into this word. When we look into our text and we, uh, we find our text in the middle of a story. So this text that we're reading is right in the middle of another occurrence. So we know the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Everybody's aware that Jesus broke the bread, he broke the fish, and he fed the 5,000. But I want to share that story with you this morning, but I want to give you a little deeper understanding of that account. Because it's not just some narrative or some story, it's an actual historic account of what happened on that day. We believe and know the Bible to be true, and we follow it that way. But what I want you to understand is here Jesus is in the middle of his ministry. He's teaching. He's doing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's declaring the gospel. He's doing all of the things that we know Jesus to have done. And he's right in the middle of it. But in the middle of it, something happens. He's preaching and declaring. And then he gets some news. And some news comes to him. And I don't think we often think of Jesus in this light. I don't think we often think of the humanity of Jesus. We need to understand that Jesus was all God, but he was also all man. And so he understood. The Bible said he knew he he has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So he's faced the temptation of sin. But that is also true about life itself. Because the Bible says we don't have a high priest that doesn't know the feeling of our infirmity. So Jesus knows how it feels to go through something hard. He knows how it feels to go through something difficult. And here he is teaching, preaching, doing ministry, pouring out of himself constantly. And then something happens. Some disciples of John the Baptist show up to one of his meetings and they come and they let Jesus know John the Baptist has been killed. John the Baptist has been killed. Uh, basically martyred. John was uh, a good man. Jesus, matter of fact, Jesus described John as the, the greatest prophet to ever live. He, he, he talked to people said, what would you go out into the desert to see? You go out to see somebody polished, someone that would come out of king's palaces, or did you go out to see a man of God? He said, what you saw, you didn't see a weed shaking in the wind. You saw a staunch, strong, prophetic voice a man who's the greatest prophet that ever lived. This is Jesus talking about John. 
John was the one who put Jesus on the scene. John was the one that baptized Jesus. He's the one that said, this is him. This is the one God was telling him about. This is the son of God. This is the one who who is coming to spread the good news. This is him. John introduced him. John lost most of his followers as a result of Jesus' ministry. Think about that for a minute. John had all of these followers, thousands of people following him, and in one moment he announces Jesus. Jesus begins to teach, preach, and do miracles, and everybody leaves John and goes and follows Jesus. And John's response to that was, I must decrease, so he must increase. He had humility. He was a good man. He was a man. But John had his doubts. There were moments where John sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one we're looking for? And he said, go back to John and tell him the sick are healed, the dead are raised, and the eyes are open, and the the, the redemptive work of God is in play. Yes, it's me, basically, is what he was saying. But he was telling John, "Don't, don't be offended at what you hear. He was saying, John, don't let your circumstances overwhelm your faith. Just because you're in a bad spot doesn't mean I'm not still God. And so John felt this pain. But when John was killed, it affected Jesus. He was hurt. Because you see, John wasn't just the prophet. John wasn't just the predecessor. John was his cousin. He was family to Jesus. And when he was told John has been killed, and why was John killed? John was killed because he spoke up against injustice. He spoke up against something that was wrong. King Herod had taken his brother's wife, and he called him out on it and said, this isn't right that you have done this, and you're living in sin, and you're a leader in Israel. This has got to stop. And he called him out. And because he called him out, after a set of circumstances, he was imprisoned, and then he was killed. His head was taken from him. Now Jesus is He's distraught. He's upset. He goes to his disciples and he says, let's go spend some time alone. And he gathers the disciples and they begin. They get in a boat and they go over. And when they're going to spend some time alone, everybody gets word of where they're going. And so they get to where they're going and Jesus looks up and there are thousands of people headed in his direction. So I want you to get the picture. Here's Jesus completely overwhelmed emotionally by the situation, needing to get along with his father, needing to pray, needing to just get in some isolation. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you just needed everybody to leave you alone for a minute? Please, just please, kids, quit pawing at me. Please, husband, quit pawing. Come on, y'all. Please, please. Just let me have some time by myself. I need a moment. Let me breathe. Let me think. Let me process all that is happening here. And here's Jesus, and he looks up, and thousands of people are coming towards him to hear what he has to say, to see what he will do. This is his life. This is what's happened. Now that he has become known to people, this is what his everyday looks like. This is what his everyday looks like. And you would think in this moment of uh, bereavement. You would think of this moment of grief that Jesus would say, I can't, I can't be bothered with this right now. And, and you would imagine that he would just run away and he would say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go take care of myself because that, that's what they say in our society nowadays. You got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of yourself. Get to take care of yourself first before you can take care of anybody else. Love yourself first before you can love anybody else. Have you ever thought that maybe loving others is loving yourself? 
Have you ever tried giving to others and see how that affects and impacts your own life? Sometimes we're looking for healing in all the wrong places. And it comes through giving, not receiving. Are you with me? So here's Jesus. He's in this mess. And he's, he's in this place of bereavement and this grief. And now he's looking up and all of these people are coming to him. And he doesn't reject them. He doesn't go look for another place to hide. He doesn't go away from them. He just says, wow, are we ready for this? And he turns to one of the disciples and he asks a question. He said, where are we going to go get some food to feed all these people? Because they've come all the way out here. There's nothing around here to eat. Where are we going to get food to feed all these people? See, there's something about Jesus that he always wants to meet physical needs. But I believe in the church today we've gotten caught up in too much of that. We're, we're trying to meet everybody's physical needs, and that's great because we want to. And God wants us to be generous towards people, especially people who are impoverished or people who are in need. But God always helped the impoverished, not only, though, impoverished in money, but impoverished in spirit. He always ministered to the need physically, but also to the need spiritually. And I would dare to say it's more important to minister to the need spiritually even before you minister to the need physically. And Jesus looks at all of these people and he says, we got to feed them. we got to get them some food. They're going to pass out trying to go find food or trying to get home. So what are we going to do? Where can we buy this much food? And Philip says, it would take half year's wage to, to feed all these people. How are we going to do that? And then somebody else in the team says, hey, there's a boy here, and he's got five loaves and two fishes. Now, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, can you imagine even saying that? I mean, hey, Mus, you're on the team. You're, you're talking to the executive. You're talking to the leader of the entire organization, and your solution is we got 5,000 men sitting out here, not including women and children. Now, here, here's what I think we should do. we got this kid over here. He's got five pieces of bread, small. It doesn't, even say, it doesn't even say five big loaves of bread. It says five small barley loaves. He, said, he uses the definition small barley loaves. And then he said, and two small fish. He didn't, I mean, these weren't whoppers. There was no fish story here. This wasn't a fish fry. This was just, we got a little bit. And Jesus said, bring it to me. And, and, and I find it so interesting that we, we think of this in terms of story time. We think of this in terms of, of you know, uh, children's church ministry. And it's a story I learned. And we think of Jesus' miracles and his doings as if they were fairy tales of some kind. Can I tell you, these, these weren't fairy tales. These were actual occurrences. Jesus actually did this. As much as if he were here right now and wanted to feed all of us, he could do that if he wanted to do that. Come on. This is the same God that sent manna from heaven. This is the same God that sent quail down into the camp. This is the same God that helped the woman of Nain. This is the same God who helped a widow who lost her child and had low oil. This is the same God. He is a God of provision. If you're struggling today in that area of provision, whatever kind of provision it is, just know this. You serve a God who is your provider. One of his names is literally God my provider. So Jesus said, bring it here. And then he said something that's interesting because a lot of times we think spiritual things are only spontaneous things. We think spiritual things just happen on the spur and they're always totally emotional and they're always this just whatever, whatever feeling. That's not true at all. The most outlandish and unbelievable miracles Jesus did were organized. 
Every, when, he, when he crossed the Red Sea, let me just ask you this. How do you get, how do you get hundreds of thousands, if not a million people, to cross on dry land in the middle of the night? You've not got some organization going on. Are y'all with me this morning? Some of you administratively gifted people are like, yes, I've been telling people this. This is how important I am. Listen, organization for God is important because God is a God of order. He is not a God of confusion. It doesn't make his power any less real. It just means that it's more funneled and focused. If you want crazy shotgun power, go for it. It's loud. It spreads out wide and it's shot, but it doesn't really hit the target. But if you want some rifle power from God ministering to the needs in your life, then you need to understand he is a powerful working God who works in the context of order. He does things right and he does the right things. Are you with me? And so he takes the Student, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to set everybody down in hundreds and fifties, and then I want you to start passing the food out. Now, you have to understand all of this is a matter of faith. The whole miracle is faith. You, you, you have to have faith if you're a disciple doing this. Because I want you to imagine, if you will, what's actually happening here. Jesus, why didn't Jesus just go, manna from heaven, let's rain bread? He could have. Why didn't you just say, God, send us some quail. We'll roast it and eat it. Why didn't Jesus just say, everyone have bread in your hand? Why didn't Jesus say, everybody line up and I'll break the bread and hand it to you as you go by? Can you imagine the length of that line? Can you imagine how long that would have taken? And can you imagine how weary people would have become? And can you imagine how ineffective a leadership move that would have been? Because then the disciples, the apostles that would be apostles, they literally would not have experienced that move of God in their life. And so that's what happened. Jesus said, I'm going to break it, and you take it. Everybody said, break it, take it. That's what God does in our lives. He breaks things down and hands them to us and says, take them to someone else. He breaks the blessing and says, I'm not just giving you the blessing, but I want the blessing to overflow from you to someone else. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, you can make a difference. Every chair in this place that has a person sitting on it can make a difference. And we need to understand that. So Jesus, he started praying. He said, God, bless this, and he started breaking it. Can you imagine being the disciples, and he's got the same amount of food in his hands as he did before, but you're going back, and you're grabbing it, and you're walking away. He's not to have anything in his hands. You're like, I'm going to go give this bread to someone. And then you're thinking, oh, please have bread when I come back. And he comes back and there's bread again and fish. And he's doing this with 12 disciples. And just to show that God doesn't do anything halfway and he doesn't waste anything after it was all over, there were 12 baskets left of food that could be eaten. I believe personally that it was just a statement to the disciples. See, anything plus me is not enough. It's always more than enough. Are you with me? So today, I want to talk to you about that story, and I want you to understand what God is saying to us about that. 
God is a God who works miraculous things. He does. There's no doubt. God can divinely heal. We believe here at Summit Church in divine healing. We believe the power of the Holy Spirit can move and touch your life. We believe that by His stripes we were healed. And there are moments and times and miraculous moments where God can move among us and just heal someone without any care whatsoever. Just God touching them and their sickness being gone. And if you are sick, believe God for that. And we will believe with you and ask God to do that in your life. We know he does that. But God also uses means. In other words, he uses people. He uses things. He uses stuff. That's why we go to the doctor. We don't look at it as wrong to go to the doctor because God heals divinely. No, we look at it as another way that God heals. Because whether we get the healing from medicine or whether we get the healing from a person or whether we get the healing from a divine interaction, we get the healing. We know ultimately that healing is coming from God. And we understand that's the way it works. So the first thing God does in order to get us inspired to make a difference is he puts us to the test. I love what this passage of scripture says when it, when it starts this, when, 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 when Jesus realizes there's all these people to feed and now he's going to feed them. And he says, where, he says, where are we going to get all the food? Now he, he asks, where are we going to get the food? But Philip says, how are we going to pay? Are you with me? Do you recognize that Philip did not answer his question? Why? Because Philip was too much in doubt and fear and lack that he didn't even get to where are we going to get it. He's like, how are we going to get it? Jesus, we ain't walking around with half a year's wages in our bag. How are we going to do this? And sometimes that's what happens to us. Jesus, however, in order to inspire us to make a difference, he puts us to the test. He does. He puts us to the test. God puts us to the test to inspire us to do something. Watch this. If you think it's not true, John chapter 6, verse 5 through 6, it'll go, six, it'll go up on the screen. Here's what it says. When Jesus looked up and saw again a crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for the people to eat? And he asked this. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So he's checking Philip. He's like seeing, where's your level at, Philip? Are you going to believe? Are you going to go along? Are you going to surrender the way I do things? Are you still going to be caught up in your fear and in your doubt? We so much of the time are tempted. That's the second. The first thing God does is test us. And after God tests us, or in other words, he places an opportunity in front of us to see how we're going to respond. Uh, yesterday was in Walmart. I was going into Walmart. And, and as I was going into Walmart, I, uh, I came along. There was this lady sitting there. She was sending one of those carts, you know, that you ride on. And as she was sitting there, she, I noticed that she got up. She had the basket was full of groceries, and she got up. But when she got up, she was just like, like this, and I thought, man, something is wrong with this lady. So I walk over to her, and I, I said, ma'am, are you okay? Is everything okay? And then she begins to tell me that she was, she was, uh, had just had a heart attack last week. And so she's trying to get over that. And I'm like, well, I'm thinking she's out here getting groceries after having a heart attack last week. She must really be in a bad situation. And I said, let me help you get your bags to the car. Well, however you're going to do this. And she said, oh, my husband's on the way. And so her husband drove up right about that time, and he took her out and all of that. But I think to myself, a lot of times, God places opportunities like that in front of us just to see 
Are you hearing me? Just to see how we will respond. Will we have that make a difference respond or we have that it's someone else's job response? Will we have that make a difference response or we have this is inconvenient for me. I'm really busy. I got places to go and be response. It really is a reality that we all have to think about. We all have to come to because God wants to use our life in this way. I'll show you. So, so then when we're put to the test, there's a temptation that comes with that test. We're immediately tempted to see if we're going to think limitation or if we're going to think abundance. If we're going to think with all of the critical limits that we put in our own mind and our own heart, or if we're going to think with the abundance that God has. The Bible says, my God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you could ask or think according to the power that works in you. So he's saying, you have the Holy Spirit. There is nothing I can't do if you'll allow me to to use your life. Yet immediately when we're faced with this opportunity, many times like Philip, we go, who cares about where, how? And our mind immediately begins to limit us as to what God could do to use our life to make a difference. When we see the opportunity to make a difference, we have a temptation to look at how hard it is. We have a temptation to look how complicated, inconvenient, or uncomfortable it may be. And sometimes we just assume this isn't possible. There's nothing I can do. How can I be of help? And when we're tempted to look at the reasons why we can't do something, we need to stop and ask why we can do it. Have you noticed that when you ask uh, the question, uh, you think on the question, why can't I do something? Your thinking and your mind and your solutions and your thoughts go in a completely different direction than if you're thinking, what can God do? When you think about what can God do, your mind goes in a completely different direction. Well, there's nothing God could do. He could do this or he could do that or he could do this. And immediately we shut ourselves down because we've been tested with an opportunity to make a difference, yet we don't see how that's possible for us. So we exclude ourselves from the process because we don't see how God could do that through me. There have been many times that I've seen God do things that in my life that were absolutely impossible. impossible. I can't even describe how impossible they were here and overseas and in different situations that if I had just said, no, God, I, I can't do that. That's too much. I would have missed on some of the greatest opportunities of my life. We have to get over this temptation. And when we face this temptation, we have to make a decision. But here's something that happens when we face this temptation. If we begin to pray and we begin to seek the face of God, here's what happens. The truth rises to the surface. Do you know there's a difference between facts and truth? Really? Yes. When it comes to the Word of God, there's a difference between facts and truth. Facts may say, you're alone. You're no good. Your parents left you. You've been abused. You've been mistreated. That may be the facts. But the truth is... You are not alone. God is with you and can be in you. And God can restore every problem you've ever had in your life. You may be looking at a set of facts that say you're not going to make it. But the truth is you are absolutely going to make it. Because there's something in your life that's different than something in everybody else's life. His name is Jesus and he can change anything. There's nothing he can't do. 
So what happens when we really start praying and seeking the face of God about these temptations of, well, I don't know if I can be used that way, or yeah, I don't know if that's my gift, or yeah, I don't know if I'm strong in that area. God, His Holy Spirit, just prompts us and say, no, 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 look at the truth. And here's the truth. When we follow God's lead and seize the opportunity and reach for the responsibility of making a difference, the truth reveals itself. And here's what the truth. This boy has five loaves and two fishes. Well, that's not a very good truth because we have a fact in front of us. And the fact is there are 5,000 men, not including women and children out here. How in the world am I going to feed 5,000 men, women and children, maybe up to 15, 20,000 people with five loaves and two fishes? Well, here's the common denominator to the miraculous. Jesus Y'all really believe. No, I'm serious. I'm not kidding you. Do, you. do you really believe? Because here's the truth. The truth is simply this. Your facts may not be enough, but plus Jesus, they're more than enough. God plus anything equals more than enough. It's true. That's a truth you need to walk away from here today. God plus anything is more than enough. Well, I'm not gifting that. God plus anything is more than enough. I'm too shy. God plus anything is more than enough. I feel overwhelmed by my culture. God plus anything is more than enough. Just what do you have, and are you willing to give it to God? That's really the question. Moses had a rod. God parted the sea. David had some stones. God killed a giant. Paul and Silas had nothing but a song in their heart and the praise of God on their lips, and God opened the prison doors and set them free. Jesus plus anything equals more than enough every time, period. So whatever you have in your hand, if you're willing to say, I surrender it to you, Jesus, I'm telling you, Jesus can use that, multiply it, and make it more than enough for any need that you have in your life, and especially more than enough to empower you and I to make a difference in the lives of someone else, but not just make a difference. we got all kinds of causes we could make a difference. It's not, it's not up to us to make a difference through all kinds of other causes. We have one cause, and that is the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ, and we are trying to make a difference for that kingdom and for that purpose. Someone say, amen. So you have, you have these different things that are happening. You have the test, you have the temptation, you have the truth, and now if you pay attention to the truth and you acknowledge that Jesus plus anything equals more than enough, then God starts putting a team together. Aren't you glad that God doesn't make you do things all by yourself all the time? That there are other people. Isn't it great agreement, the power of agreement in our lives? The Bible said that where we learn the power of agreement, it will have exponential effects in our life of faith. It will. The Bible said where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'll be there in the midst of them. That's what he said. Every time we get together, I don't care if it's in a small group or if it's in uh, like a service like this or if it's in some kind of way where you're talking about Jesus or you gathered for the purpose of faith. I'm telling you, whether you realize it or not, not just the omnipresence of God, but the tangible presence of God is there. 
there. He promises it. He says, you show up for me, I'll show up for you. That's what he says. But then he goes on to say, wherever two or three agree as touching any one thing on this earth, it shall be done for them. And here's what he's saying. In other words, when you get an agreement, your faith is exponentially fixed. This idea of synergy that came out in self-help and leadership ideologies over the last 20 years started in the Bible. It's called faith agreement. When we get together in our faith and we start believing what the Word of God says, it exponentially expedites our faith and God changes things. If I want God to move in my life, I'll pray. But if I really want God to move in my life, I'll get with another believer who believes and we'll pray together. The Bible literally gives this principle in the Old Testament. It says one person who is fighting for the cause of God can put a thousand to flight. Two can put 10,000. That's not addition. That's multiplication. Come on. Are you with me this morning? Agreement is a powerful thing. And God gives us a team. You see a team right here. The boy. How did this miracle happen? It happened because there was a boy who was unassuming and he was willing to give his lunch. Now, now to you, that may not sound like a big deal. Cute little kid story. He's so cute. He's so cute. He gave his lunch. Took his lunch to Jesus. Gave his lunch. No, that brother been out there for a long time. He gave his lunch, y'all. He was taking the chance that he was going to go away hungry. But he was willing to give what he had because somehow in his childlike heart, he knew that if I give this to that guy, it's going to change this whole situation. And so then you had the disciples, the followers of a friends and friends of Christ who were willing to do the work, who were willing to take this miracle to the people, who were willing to disseminate and disperse this miracle into other people's lives. They were willing to make a difference. And then you had Jesus, the Son of God, who had the power and the ability to make this miracle happen in the first place. And together they had a whole team. But I want to take it a little step further. It goes much deeper than that. It goes much deeper than that. Because... Because there was another person that helped make this miracle happen. Whoever it was that caught those fish. Whoever it was that baked that bread was in this process. Whoever harvested the wheat that was available so that bread could be baked. Whoever worked in that field to sow the seeds for that harvest was a part of this miracle happen. See, because God doesn't just do the miraculous, but he also uses means. He uses people and he uses stuff to make things happen. You know, when Martin Luther King started the Reformation, the biggest point of his ideology or his philosophy or his theology, I should say, is justification by faith. In other words, he believed fully that we don't get into heaven because of our good works. There was a lot of Corruption in the church going on, convincing people they had to do this or they had to give that or they had to do this in order for them to go to heaven or someone in their family to go to heaven. And, 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 and he saw this corruption and he cried out against it. And, 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 and the biggest part of it was he believed that we were saved by grace through faith, not of our works, lest any man should boast. In other words, we can't save ourselves. But God can save us if we're willing to just go to him and believe that what he says is true. Right? Everybody with me? But something unbelievable happened in that process. When people began to understand, they didn't have to earn 
their way to salvation, but that they just believed on Christ and their salvation would come to them. They could be regenerated. Then they did. They were regenerated and the Holy Spirit began to change their life. And now they begin to be these people who, I mean, there was literally a doctrine that came out of the church called the doctrine of work. <laughs> Everybody say work. How many know there's dignity in work? How many know hard work is good for a human soul? Are y'all with me? Some of y'all are like, "Mm, I don't know if I'm going to go there with you, Pastor. I don't know. It was the doctrine of work, and here's what it meant. It meant, this is what Timothy was writing about. Paul was writing to Timothy when he said, a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Because there was a true reality to that. The result of not working caused you to be in a position where you weren't going to eat. And, And the truth is, God has, we have changed over time what God intended for work to be. Everybody stay with me for a second. I'm going to give you a little lesson. This word that we use for work, many of us might say occupation. We might say job. But let me just give you a little little lesson here. We used to use the word vocation. Now, vocation comes from a Latin word, and the Latin word simply means the call. It means your call. Now, the problem is nowadays we teach kids, find out what you want to do. We're telling them the wrong thing. Even some of us in this whole process of change that's got on in the the last three or four years, so many people are changing careers and changing jobs and things of that nature. And one of the reasons is because they're trying to find something that's going to make them happy. But we're approaching this from the wrong perspective. A vocation is a call. So we're asking the wrong question, not what do I want to do, but what does God want me to do? And they had a problem in those days that everybody wanted to be a monk or everybody wanted to be a priest. Or that if, that's how, if I'm going to be holy, if I'm really going to be a holy person of God, then I must go and be a monk or I must go and, 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 and do all of these things in a re- religious ritual and all of this. And, 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 and Luther said, no, 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 no. What is more holy about what I do than about what you do? Because if what you do is what God called you to do, then it's just as holy as what I do because this is what God called me to do. And in our Christian experience and Christian walk, much of the time we're thinking of the pastor's job as holy. The pastor and leader's job is of God, but I'm just doing the career that I went to college for, or I'm just doing the career that I thought I wanted for my life, or I'm just, and listen, that's okay if that's where you're at, but now you need to start asking God to make it a vocation. And if it's not, and it can't be, then let God take you into a new place that can become your vocation. And by the way, vocation isn't just about work. A vocation is about a call. So your, your husbandry is vocation. Your spousal commitments are a vocation. Your parenting is a vocation. It's the call of God on your life. And what we've done by shifting our thinking to occupation instead of vocation, we've just filled our life with work to do instead of doing the work of God in our lives. So if God uses means, then listen, if you're a teacher, you need to be called to teaching. Come on, you need to know, if you're a Christian, you need to know, I'm not just here because it was a job and it was available and I went to school for it. You need to know, God put me here. 
If you're working for a civil service job of any kind, top to bottom, you need to be doing that because you believe that's where God put you. That's where the circle of influence is for you. And the whole purpose for you being there is to advance the kingdom of God. Not to just do the job, but to advance the kingdom of God. Think about what I'm saying to you. Think about the way we have thought about this. I don't know if I can think about my job as a calling. Then think about the people God's placed you around on that job. Doesn't that change your perspective about how you view that job? Aren't you more quick to go, God, do you really want me to leave or do you really want me to stay? Instead of just going, I hate these people. I'm getting out of here. Oh, come on. Y'all just getting quiet on me like you ain't. Listen, you think I don't watch Facebook every once in a while? I see you. Everybody else does too, by the way. You might want to consider that. What does God want me to do? Because if God wants me to be an insurance salesman, then God will use that platform to minister the kingdom through my life to the people that I influence, to the people that I impact. It's not to say that you can't ever advance. It's not to say that you can't change. It's not to say any of that. It's to say the way we're looking at vocation needs to be brought back under the redeeming qualities of God instead of just having an occupation of doing a job. Because we've, 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 it's caused us to compartmentalize our Christianity to be something we do on the weekends instead of something we do every day. When we get up in the morning and when we go to bed at night, when I parent my kids, I'm under a vocation. The call of God on my life to be this parent. Are you here? Are you with me? Doesn't that change your mentality about parenting? Doesn't that change your mentality about marriage? You're not just married to this person and trying to make it work. My God, it's the hardest thing in the world to have a good marriage. I'm sick of hearing that. Make a commitment and keep it. And recognize that your marriage is a call from God on your life. Are you with me? I got serious there for a minute, sorry. So Jesus is looking at all, it's not, just the, it's not just the bread that was made by the mom and put in the back. It's the people who made the bread. It's, it's, it's all of these different things that go on in our world to make things happen. When you pray every day, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, God will make that provision to you, but he involves others to get it to you. Are you with me? So the question then in becomes, are we going to be a part of the team or are we going to sit on the sidelines? Uh, I was talking to Jerry, um, one of our elders, Jerry Hudson, this week, and, and we were kind of talking about this idea and this concept. And he, he gave me a perfect illustration, so I'm going to share it with you. But he owned a, a cleaners here, modern cleaners, if you, if you uh, have ever been there. Uh, great, great place. Great, get your clothes just right. Uh, here's what I said when I when I titled this story. Here's what I titled it: Modern Cleaners, where your clothes get clean and your soul gets fed. Because 
because here's when he owned that business, he's retired now, but when he owned that business, he said, David, you wouldn't believe how much witnessing we were able to do out of that business and how many people would come into our cleaners and, and they would drop off their clothes and they would say, hey, can, can you pray with me about such and so? And we'd take them in the back room and pray with them. And, 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 and he just said this was an opportunity not just to do my business, but it was an opportunity to build the kingdom, to minister to people, to make a difference. See, every chair can make a difference. Every person in every chair of every church can either sit in that chair and be on the bench, can sit in that chair and be in the bleachers, or can sit in that chair and be on the team. There's a difference. To be on the field. And it's the people who are on the field that make a difference. And it's the way you view your life that matters whether or not you're on the field or not. If you view what you do in life as a vocation, a calling from God to advance the kingdom, then you're on the field. But if you just view your life as just existing and happening and going through the motions and do my church stuff on the weekend, then you're not on the field. You feel like you're on the field because you're working, you're doing, you're going, but you're not advancing the kingdom. Come on somebody it's really simple if you think about it are you with me so then the last thing or almost last thing or the seven things from the last I'm joking (laughs) is the turnaround see because here's what happens when followers of Christ realize our whole life is meant to make a difference for God's kingdom then things begin to turn around they begin to change the chairs around us begin to fill up because we are allowing God to use our lives like a vocation instead of using it merely as an occupation. So the, the fifth thing that happens then is the test minus the temptation plus the truth times the team equals the turnaround. Now, for those of you who are not algebraically inclined, which I'm, I'm one, I'm going to read it for you again. The test minus the temptation, get over the temptation, Plus the truth, the revelation that God is bigger than every situation, times the team equals the turnaround. If you want to see those chairs around you filled, this is what you do. This is the formula for that. Uh, The willingness of the master to make a difference using willing people results in an unbelievable turnaround. There are things that need to turn around, y'all. How many would agree there are things in our culture that need to turn around? How many of you believe that there are things in our world that need to turn around? How many of you believe there are things in your home that need to turn around? And I'm not just talking about sin issues. I'm talking about lots of just different things, broken things, messed up things. That's the thing that's so powerful about God. He could take your mess and turn it into a message. That's what he does. So the question then becomes, are you ready for the turnaround? Are you ready for change? You see, God can take your mess, like I said, and make it a message. He can take whatever problems or issues or complications or if you'll just surrender to him and he'll make it something powerful and something awesome. The Bible said all things work together for for them who love God, for the good, for them that love God and are called according to his purpose. All things don't work together for good to everybody. They work together for good to them who love God and are called according to his purpose. Are you with me? So then the sixth thing is this. The testimony. Because anytime there's a turnaround, there has to be a testimony. 
In other words, anytime something great changes, we have to talk about it. We have to let people know. We have to communicate. We have to declare. We have to get. We used to have testimony services in church. People say, I wish we'd go back to the days of testimony in church. No, you don't. You don't wish that. I was there. I'm that old. And let me tell you something. Everything everybody stood up to say wasn't exactly a testimony. Come on, somebody. It's like, we don't care. Why? Well, I went to Walmart and had a sale. Hallelujah. Sit down. But a testimony is, here's what a testimony is. It's the declaration of victory after you've been put to the test. That's what a testimony is. It's the declaration of victory after you've been put to the test. In other words, God tested you and you stood up and you said, I want to be a part of the team. I want to make a difference for your kingdom. I see my life as a holy vocation and I will use it for the kingdom of God. And God is saying, now here's what's going to happen as a result of that. You're going to see blessings in your home and blessings on your job and blessings in your relationships and blessings on your kids and blessings in your life. And not just monetary blessings, but blessings of grace and goodness and power and might. Why? Because you've surrendered your life to me and you've passed the test. Therefore, there's victory and you can give the testimony. And when somebody says, why are you happy? This is not a happy time. You could say, because I got the joy of the Lord, which is my strength. And, and all of this God can do. God can do all of this if we'll just Surrender to his will. See, the whole reason for the test and truth and team is for the turnaround. And when you have the turnaround, it results in a testimony that brings glory to God and it impacts people's lives. God is good and he wants people to know it. And he wants to do and be good through our lives. Our family, school, job, business, community, every part of our life. He wants to use it to make a difference for his kingdom. He's given us a vocation, y'all. Not just an occupation, but he's given us a vocation, a call to advance his kingdom. So here's what it means. Fill the chair. Everybody look at the chair around you. Look at, look, if you, if you see a chair that's empty around you, I want you to do two things. I want you to do three things. I want you to pray for the potential person that could be sitting in that chair. Secondly, I want you to make a commitment that you're going to fill that chair. And thirdly, I want you to make a commitment that you're going to initiate discipleship in the life of the person that fills that chair. You hear me? This is what God's calling us to do, Summit. Yeah, that's going to get uncomfortable. That's going to cause you a little bit more time effort. That's going to cause a little bit more energy from you. But that's what's worth it. These are the real things. The other stuff we're doing is not real. It's not advancing anything. It's not moving the kingdom forward. Come on, are you with me? So here's what happens. You fill the chair, you change a life. You fill the chair, you save a marriage. You fill the chair, you set the captive free. People walking in with addictions and walking out without them. Just got a testimony this week of a guy who's had a long-standing physical problem. And one of the people on our prayer team prayed for them, and they are healed. You feel the chair, people get healed. 
you fill the chair, it makes a difference. Let's pray. Thank you for being a part of the Summit Church podcast today. We pray that God used today's podcast to draw you closer to Him. You can stay in the know at Summit by following us on social media. Thank you again for being a part. This is the Summit Church Podcast.